This is The Breakdown. Welcome again. This is your host, Yasser Luwati, coming to you straight from the Paris Southside Bonlieu. Thanks again for joining us on this new edition and this new season of the podcast. I'm receiving again today uh, Tori Russell from St. Louis. He's been a historic activist in Missouri and one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. He's also the president and co-founder of the International Black, Black Freedom Alliance. Uh, he came last time to speak to us about the post-George Floyd racist assassination, the protests, and what they were demanding in terms of systemic racism and the police brutality. This time, uh, Tori Russell is back on the podcast to speak of the Breonna Taylor case. But before that, he will be telling us the latest developments in uh, the South and the Midwest when it comes to police brutality, mobilization, and if he is hopeful, he's optimistic or not on how the movement is evolving and if it is properly supported and, of course, funded. Tori Russell, welcome again. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure and an honor, and I can't thank you enough for allowing us to speak with you again on these uh, topics. Your analysis, of course, is beyond the usual talking points when it comes to racism, police brutality, and the continuum with uh, capitalism. Uh, last time we spoke, you were critical of the Bernie Sanders campaign, saying that it did not go far enough in terms of uh, racial policies, that, of course, he was uh, critical of capitalism, but he, he lacked the arguments to convince black voters to come out for him. You also developed the your, um, how can I say, uh, the limits you see in the movement in terms of waiting for politicians to bring forward answers to their demands, and that only radical politics uh, can bring about radical change in terms of, in, in the face of radical injustices. Uh, Tori Russell, can you please tell us what's been going on since uh, June the 6th when you were on the show, uh, both in uh, St. Louis and, of course, uh, around uh, Missouri? For sure, man. Um, it's, been, it's been quite the time, man. Uh, you know, since June, um, we've had meetings. Um, so I, I left St. Louis uh, to go to Atlanta to meet with some, some artists, some athletes, uh, one of them, T.I., and so we had some good conversations, talked about movement funding. Um, you can't have a movement and can't sustain a movement without funding. Um, and so we talked about some of the uh, strategies and tactics and things um, and some things that they wanted to be a part of, um, buying land and, and, and moving people to buy land and kind of creating our own kind of towns and cities and, and, and talking about how we put our own politics in. And so um, I left that meeting kind of optimistic. Um, and then from there, I came back home. We was in the streets with George Floyd um, and other people in St. Louis. Um, and then, you know, uh, we saw the McCluskeys. Um, the McCluskeys came out uh, while we was marching to the mayor's house, um, pulled out guns on us, um, and it became, you know, national news. And so they parlayed that to uh, to the RNC, uh, Donald Trump, uh, and, you know, invited them to speak about gun rights and all of those things. Even the governor of Missouri kind of took on the balance. So, uh, yeah, man, it's been a lot. So we'll come back to the McCluskeys and they're pulling out an AR-15 and a gun in front <laughs> of the uh, demonstrators. Uh, since 
for the past, let's say, uh, four months, can you say that the conversation on defunding the police has become, let's say, a national conversation or even become mainstream to the point of getting momentum within political parties? I mean, one political party being the, the Democratic Party. Um, I think I think it's become part of the mainstream conversation when you're talking about police brutality and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, you have to talk about the mechanisms um, that fund them and sustain them. And so I think from the movement and from the media standpoint, it's definitely a talking point and something to be debated. Um, and so it, it's not a protest that you're not going to talk about defunding the police and taking funding away from the police. I just see no party, Democrat or Republican, really taking on this mantle and putting this in the platform. You know, all is to us is no different from in the 70s when people were anti-war, you know, um, talking about defunding the military, saying reduce the military budget, right? Because all it is is a divestment from the military industrial complex and moving that towards education, healthcare, jobs, um, businesses for black and brown people, um, job training in affordable housing. And so once we talk about those things, where are you going to get the money? And if you're looking at the United States of America, they love police locally and they love the military internationally. And so the budget looks like a pro-military, pro-police budget. We want it to be pro-people um, and pro-human services. People will react to that. And I know all of us heard it multiple times over and over in mainstream media that, yeah, if you're calling for defund the police, that means you're calling for lawlessness and chaos in the cities and that without police, it would be impossible for cities to prosper and for communities to remain safe. And you, the answer has been repeated over and over again, but what do you answer to the people who stick to this, you know, very, uh, how can I say, binary answer on you either have the police or you, or you have, you know, anarchy in the sense of uh, chaos in the cities and communities? Well, first, I would like to apologize uh, to the people um, that the movement uh, does not have Nike or Pepsi doing the slogans. So I know you probably don't like the marketing scheme or the slogan, defund the police. Um, but it's a, to me, it's a, it's a clear decry um, towards defunding people who are abusing us. Um, I would like to welcome everybody, if they were to close their eyes while they're listening to us, and to imagine what a safe community would look like. I think they would imagine, uh, you know, healthy, beautiful gardens, houses that are adequate in quality. Um, they can afford them. Um, people are probably walking. It's probably fresh produce in the community. Uh, the school is beautiful. They're educating people, and people have jobs and businesses that live there. I think no part of your imagination around what is a great community or beautiful community or quality or safe community look like, no one's going to name police. And if you're not going to name police, then the priority should not be funding police over housing or health care um, or education. And so I think we have to, you may not like the slogan, you may not like the talking point, um, but if you look at the, the just the funding aspect of it, or you compare these places like St. Louis, Chicago to other places that need mental health services and not a person with a gun, I think you'll see a solution. Um, and you might like to talk about it. <laughs> How is it that regardless of the racist killing of George Floyd, 
and Brianna Taylor, of which we, we will talk about in a few minutes, and the beatings of protesters all over the nation, and the fact that the police union in New York has endorsed Donald Trump for the upcoming election in November, how is it that it does not make people think twice about accepting a heavy presence of police in certain communities and the heavy militarization of the police? What's missing between connecting the reality of police brutality and a change of mind when it comes to people's ideas of what, as you said, safe communities should look like? I think the, the one reality is that they don't live here. And so if you live in a community where you were getting pulled, pulled over all the time, getting harassed all the time, getting searched all the time, unwanted, um, and you're not even a part of the crime syndicate that even goes on in your community, um, you, would probably, you would probably disagree. You'd probably say, hey, look, we need something different. But most of these people don't live here. And so once we start making these comparisons, we don't want to compare them in, in, in like a, a dichotomy and saying this is this and this is wrong. But we have to look at it and say, why is my community, right, which is poor working class who historically has been disenfranchised, right, through voting, through housing, through the FHA loans, through redlining, and so on and so forth. Why do we get more police for a few people in the community doing crime, right? But on a every college campus probably around the world you're gonna find more drugs on the college campus than you're gonna find in the hood i don't know I, i've been to the north side i've been to the south side of paris i'm pretty sure it's no less drugs there than it is in the university and so we don't see the same level of policing we don't see the same level of police brutality and we don't see the same level of criminality when we talk about the students but they live somewhere with high drugs and so we have to start comparing these things and we have to come to a common sense solution. And I don't think more police, and I don't think this number of police or spending 300 million in St. Louis or 5 billion in Chicago, 6 billion in, 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 in New York and 4 billion in DC. If you're talking about spending hundreds of millions and billions of dollars on police um, and not spending that same amount on education, housing and healthcare, then we are talking about a pendulum swing where the NYPD, of course, they can endorse somebody because they they not advocating really for 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 uh, uh, safe communities. They advocating for a raise in immunity, and so we have to advocate for safety beyond the abusers and the oppressors. I mean, you mentioned France, and and you tell me if this sounds familiar to what's happening in the U.S. In France, we have first the, the French police was born under the pro-Nazi regime in 1943, the, the uh, Vichy regime. Uh, Philippe Pétain, who shook Hitler's hand and became his uh, subservient in France, signed a decree that brought the police uh, and, and made it a national body for the safety of the nation, of course. Now, that police has been known around the world for its a killing of Algerians in 1961, when they were killed, literally, they, were, they had so many dead bodies, and because they were marching for in the, the independence of Algeria, they were, they were throwing them into the Seine River. They were, other, they were also, before that, the crimes of collaborating with the deportation of Jews, uh, the crimes of killing uh, people in uh, Martinique in, in, in 1967, and of course, the 
brutality that has been on display for the past uh, a few years against the banlieue and against, of course, the Yellow Vest movement. Now, here in France, uh, when communities organize along, you know, along with the state in terms of bringing public safety, they don't call for defunding the police, they call for more police, okay? Now, of course, progressives and, and human rights defenders will say we need less police, more education, and part of that money being spent on militarization should be spent on crime prevention. And that crime prevention is done through better schools, better health services, better community services, and of course, to make the community a cohesive body so crime is reduced to a low minimum. Now, from what I'm seeing here in Paris and, and, uh, and over the US is that you have, I may draw a huge a kind of a, a comparison that may be disproportionate, but if I take the case of Egypt or the police in Tunisia under Ben Ali, it's a state within the state. So even when politicians may agree with the communities or the activists that the police must be kept in check and transparency must be implemented, they are just powerless because the police, they have support for, throughout the, the bodies of the state. They have you know, a, a traditional and historic uh, impunity and that no one would dare going out against the police publicly when you are elected to serve the Republic. What's your take? Does it sound familiar to what's happening in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we know all of these things to be true, no matter where you are in the world. Uh, police um, or law enforcement uh, was created by the elites to protect, um, you know, their capital, their property, um, and the businesses that fund the system that they created. And so uh, I didn't know that about Paris, uh, you know, uh, but it makes sense uh, that some some people would say, hey, we need to keep our eye on these people. And so there's always a group of people that's always going to be ostracized, always going to be identified as lesser than, uh, dehumanized, and need to be watched. And that creates jobs for people. On um, the same way when they're saying that the slaves were going to be free or enslaved Africans, now they created slave patrols or slave patrols um, became police. And so it's only after keeping white people property, keeping the least property. <coughs> Excuse me. But we have to say, do we still have slaves? Are we still looking for some lesser than people? Are we still trying to dehumanize people in society? And do you think we should create jobs upon them? And so, yeah, you're right. I think there's a parallel. There's definitely some differences. When I was walking in Paris, I seen people jump out of vans and the Mercedes uh, being sprinters with uh, AKs, um, semi-automatic rifles. Uh, definitely, if you're an Arab walking down the street with a hijab or looking Arab, um, or you look like a, a African, sub-Saharan African immigrant, they jumping out to check your papers. I know, for example, they jumped out and asked me for my passport or asked me for my papers. I don't speak French. I pulled my passport out. They saw the U.S. passport. They left me alone. And this is not too far from the loop. And so for me, I understand it. No matter where I've been in the world, I've always looked like a criminal because I'm the person that's criminalized. I believe 
that now we're in a point where in which we should see enough people being criminalized, black people, brown people, Arabs, Sub-Saharan, African, Caribbean people, Jews, should remember this time when we should all have a coalition against the fascists. We should have this anti-fascist coalition. But what we're seeing is that capitalism is playing a part in it and it's fueling them to say, I need to keep my things. And if I have to keep these people down to keep my things and hire these people to do so, then I wanted to do it. And be it the president, be it the politicians, be it the business owners, they like the police because it gives them a false sense of comfort. But you can't legislate and you can't police poverty away. You know, you can't police desperation away. And I don't think they understand that because I don't think they've ever been desperate like me and you. Well, you know, what you just said about people, you know, having a false sense of security, uh, that's exactly why I personally did not endorse the Yellow Vest movement, nor any leftist coalition against the current administration or the one before it, because they remained silent on police brutality in the banlieue where I live for decades. They would come for the election and disappear once they get elected. Uh, I saw the previous generation of activists and the one before them literally uh, you know, handing their lives away because they have, they've been activists their whole lives, got arrested, got broke, their health is deteriorated, and they spend their whole lives fighting these injustices without the support of you know, white, white organizations. And when the Yellow Vest movement you know, uh, rose about two years ago and got severely uh, repressed by the Macron government and his police. We saw people being maimed, losing their eyes. We saw kids being tear gassed. We have seen women being beaten. We, uh, we have seen uh, an elderly lady being stomped by the police and almost dying, etc. I mean, like the, uh, the images were horrendous. But when I was asked on a, in, uh, on a North African radio here in Paris, uh, Radio France Maghreb, I said, listen, I, I, my answer to that is the same answer I gave to leftists after the state of emergency is join the club. And this, this became a problem only when that violence started targeting you. And I told, for example, the uh, Occupy Paris movement Nuit Debout uh, some three, year, three or four years ago, the same thing is that you white people don't care about police brutality as long as black and Arab bodies in the banlieue are being beaten. And when that violence crosses the belt and comes into downtown Paris, it becomes a national conversation. And I said, well, the problem is that you will welcome blacks and Arabs in your coalitions to give a certain, you know, rainbow, you know, coloring and that we are open to you, you are open to everybody. But when the conversation becomes serious, it's a white to white conversation. And all the questions of racism become again, secondary and cosmetic in your own narrative. So I really like, you know, get what you're saying in terms of people feeling safe because that police is beating the other. And <clears> when they get beaten by that police, they call the other, oh, I feel your pain. And you're like, we, yeah. It's the Bernie Sanders thing, right? It's the, it's your leftist, right? Until, right? <laughs> Up until a certain point. And so most Marxists, socialists, Trotskyites, Gramsci, they see everything they see means of production. Um, they see internationalism. They see, they see women. They see everything except for color. They might see women, maybe, but they damn sure not seeing color. And so where we get to the point 
were in which, like you said, how do you address these issues for everybody? Or is it that the black people, black and brown people have always experienced this and we waiting on you to get your head cracked? Because maybe that's the only way that you can understand it is you get baptized under fire. Maybe, just maybe, you being profiled, you being beat up at Occupy, um, you being radicalized from going to a Black Lives Matter um, march and getting pepper sprayed and seeing your kids and people that look like you, maybe that moves you, but I think we have to move it beyond really what we know the politicians or the political parties have done, right? So it's like, we first you couldn't vote, then when you voted, we took you for granted. Then we start coming only when election time, and I think now we're at a point where in which people are saying, don't even come here. And I think that's why a lot of people are saying they don't want to vote, or they're not voting for this person or this party and might want to create something different because you don't see them. And the only time they show up is when they brutalize or when they need your vote. Exactly. And actually, this even brings the, like, I'm going to take this conversation a bit further, that in terms of electoral politics, we know the trick. Disappear for five years, comes, you know, election time. They come here, photo, you know, photo ops, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes people will tell you, well, we have to get to make change happen by entering uh, state institutions. And the big institutions were the power holes. And they said that in order to, make, to get that done, we have to integrate political parties. And those political parties will nominate people. Now, of course, you see me coming, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk about Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, no. I'm just going to mention a name uh, that you know is Wesley Bale. Now, for those who don't know him, he's a prosecutor now in uh, St. Louis, and he's a person who is an African-American and who got elected on a platform that he would somehow confront uh, police brutality and that somehow he would help, you know, demands of communities to be at least heard in terms of systemic racism from the police and police brutality. Now, can you please tell our listeners and viewers who Wesley Bale is and what it represents in terms of tokenism that uh, hoping to have a Muslim person, a black person, an Arab person, a, a son of an immigrant into a position of power does not mean the political answers needed by uh, uh, co communities of color are going to be like, you know, uh, addressed and at least, you know, taken, taken seriously. I think, you know, I, I think, well, I hope the world has seen it. Um, I don't know about Europe. Um, I don't see a lot of people of color being elected in Europe. You're right, it's there aren't. <laughs> there are, you know, there aren't that many, yes. I seen see one sister in the parliament in the UK I lost my mind. I was like, oh, okay. And then I looked at her and she was kind of neoliberal, so I unfollowed her. Um, just keeping it in the book, man, because I think what happens is that we, you put hope in, like even me, as someone that would say I'm extreme, I'm radical, I'm far left, I'm something that, you know, not in the mainstream, but more people were thinking like me. And so when I even see somebody that look like me, I get excited. Because at least it takes courage even for you to run. Um, but in the U.S., we didn't ran a gambit on identity politics. We didn't, we didn't ran. We had the end of our rope on just having another Negro, another Muslim, 
um, another person in her job just in there. And so we can't keep playing that game. We had Obama. That didn't work. Um, you had mayors in Gary and Los Angeles that were black. And we all know police brutality lives in Los Angeles. Um, and so Wesley Bell, it comes from that cloth. He comes from that Obama cloth. He comes from that, that Negro, that squeaky clean, that Condoleezza Rice cloth. It looks and checks all the balances. It, it All the boxes are checked. When you Google Wesley Bell, you're going to see, you're basically going to think Thurgood Marshall has come back um, or the greatest black progressive lawyer in the history of America. But Wesley Bell is not that. Wesley Bell has had police-involved shootings in almost every month since he's been in office. He just had someone killed last month um, in St. Louis County. No charges for the officers. But be, um, uh, sorry, before we speak of that case, uh, what was Wesley Bell's decision when it comes to the case of Mike Brown and that was, that again made headlines and the decision taken by Wesley Bale made no sense whatsoever, both on factual grounds and as long and in terms of at what moment in history the decision was taken, because we are talking about the post George Floyd America here. Right. So I mean, I think I think what we're seeing, like you said, after George Floyd, after Breonna Taylor, after all these things on the national news, Wesley Bale still decides to do the same thing as the old racist white prosecutor does and bring no charges against Darren Wilson, the officer who we know murdered Mike Brown in the streets with his hands up in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. And so if it takes you six years to bring back no charges, uh, we have to look at the background of Wesley Bale. So before he was a prosecutor, he was a city council member. He worked to, uh, uh, and I don't know if your viewers know, can, uh, he worked to water down and kind of uh, uh, weaken the consent decree. So the consent decree was created by us and Ferguson, the protesters. We wanted more regulations on the police. Wesley Bell worked to, to roll back those regulations. So we said we needed more black officers. Wesley Bell said we don't need more black officers. We said we need more women officers. Wesley Bell said we don't need more women officers, right? He's, we said these people need to be fired. He said these people, no, they don't need to be fired. They need to be retrained. This is the Wesley Bell that we was talking about. Before that, he was a prosecutor in these small towns. So what made Ferguson Ferguson was, Ferguson had 21,000 people. It was 67% black. But over 80% of the traffic warrants, or the warrants for the city, were black people. Basically, everybody in the city who was black had a warrant, and every black person in the neighboring towns had a warrant. It was more warrants in the town than people that actually lived there. Wesley Bell was a part of that process, right? He was the person who would take your bail. He would lock you up if you didn't have your bail money. And so he goes from that, and if you Google him now, he said he wants to end cash bail. When he was a prosecutor six, seven, eight years ago, he was taking cash bail. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did you become progressive? What are you doing now? Um, and what is this process where you could stop the people's movement time and time again, but the media holds you up as something progressive, right? But we have to question that. But now we, the world has seen that Wesley Bell is not who he said he is. Superman is not coming out that closet. And then now we are gearing up to remove Wesley Bell from his prosecutor's office 
um, in the two and a half years. So how was the community reacting to a prosecutor who was elected on a progressive platform, but actually enforces, uh, you know, conservative, if not hard right politics? I think they're confused. And I think a lot of people are confused. When you see somebody who looks like you come from a community like you and talks about the, the things that you talk about, you have to be very politically astute to follow to see if they're doing it, right? So he said, oh, I'm gonna put an independent prosecutor in, there can be no cash bail. We won't be holding people in jail who can't afford it. We're gonna reform the jail system, no, 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 no. But in actuality, he's had murder after murder, people dying in his jail. There's still cash bail. There's not mental health services um, for inmates. There's not an alternative to sentencing out there. And he's brought in actually Department of former Department of Justice employees that worked under Obama, who worked against Ferguson and Baltimore and all these places. He brought them into his office when he became a prosecutor. And he also has a police officer who's his chief of staff. And so we see what his 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 tenure is going to be. It's going to be pro-police and pro-neoliberals who are trying to really deconstruct the movement. Um, but they're just putting a black face ahead of it. Yeah, but in that case, how do you explain his willingness to continue or to maintain the status quo? Is it an incapacity from him or an outright adherence to such policies? Because he, he could be I, against I them and say, listen, I can't. This is beyond me. I don't have enough means. The, the, the powers you know, you know, in, in, in the, that I'm confronting are way too organized, way too, uh, way too strong for me. And even though I hear your, your complaints, I just can't. And so what I'm saying is if the job tells, if the job demands of you to be courageous, to be fair and to be just, and you get in there and you understand that you can't do that. If you say that you're out organized, that you're not courageous enough or that the other side is just more powerful, then our ask as the people is that you remove yourself and will allow us to put someone in who's courageous enough and let us organize around you. Because we organize for Wesley Bell to get into office. So it's not like he doesn't have organizational people power behind him, right? He had million, he had thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars from people like Color of Change and all these other organizations pushing for something different, right? But now when it's time for the people to actually implement something, there's no Color of Change. They're not here no more. All the lights and the glitter and glamour is gone. All the cameras gone. All the funding is gone, right? But he still has the power to do something. And he chooses not to. And he chooses not to just go home and say he's defeated. We can't have that like another Obama, where you say that you used up all your social capital trying to implement watered-down policies when the people didn't ask you for watered-down policy. We ask for a courageous leader, and we ask for justice and fairness for everybody. So in that case, what happened to, the, to uh, Ashley Hall, Terry Tillman, and what did he do in the face of the uh, McCloskeys who pulled out their guns as you were marching with your people in St. Louis? So please tell us about Ashley Hall, Terry Tillman, and then the outright insult of having the McCloskey not only uh, pulling their guns in front of, you know, uh, 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 peaceful demonstrators, but also being invited by uh, the RNC and the governor offering to pardon them, to pardon them, excuse me, should they be indicted. 
You know, um, you know, we we got to start. You know, that uh, the in a very sad and disheartening thing. Uh, Ashley Hall was a black woman, St. Louis County, in Ladue, in a nice neighborhood. Uh, she went to go buy balloons and flowers for her mother, um, who was very sick and possibly dying. Uh, when she left the store. Uh, she was shot by officers unexplained in our car. Wesley Bell, within two weeks of being um, becoming a prosecutor, um, he said, oh, we'll have an independent prosecutor. We'll look at these things. Uh, but now it's a year and a half, almost two years later, and we see what happened. Um, the officers accused her of stealing. She was not stealing. She had a receipt in her hand when she was shot. Um, and there was no charges brought up on any of the Excuse officers. Excuse me, stand by. You don't, I mean, like, I may not be the bravest person on earth and the smartest one, but I don't think you should be shooting a person who just stole flowers. Um, let's say if, even if she did steal, am I wrong? Even if she stole flowers, do you shoot someone to apprehend them over flowers? I don't think so. And I, I don't think that we, I think that's a deeper part of the conversation, but for the surface level, it's like this lady was innocent. No matter if you felt someone should be shot on, over flowers for stealing flowers or not, she wasn't that person. And there was no report of a robbery in progress. So what we're saying is that the officers involved made up a story, shot someone, right? Put this lady in a colostomy bag for the rest of her life, right? Scared and intimidated her. Gave her some money, told her to sign a, a gag order, not a close uh, order. Now she can't speak. But she was the first of 13 consecutive months of a police-involved shooting on the Wesley Bill. The next bigger case is Terry Tillman. Terry Tillman was a young man who, who was owning a gun, right? It's legal where I live. You can own a gun. He walked into a store. The store told him to leave. He left. The police chased him. He ran because he didn't want to be involved with the police. They chased him down and shot him. There are witnesses. There are cameras, um, independent, uh, independent journalists and people who work there saw Terry Tillman drop his gun and was shot in the back and killed for legally possessing a firearm. Wesley Bell, no charges. There's been multiple people killed in the jail, died mysteriously in the jail, no charges. We even had white people in St. Louis County fire at officers, try to, uh, attempted to kill them, okay? Wesley Bell, they did not harm those white people. They took them in, and Wesley Bell still, right, spoke about a compassion for the witnesses, compassion for the suspects, that things need to change. But when it's a black person, he doesn't have that same compassion. So for me, what I understand that Wesley Bell, like you said, if you look at his background, Wesley Bell's father was a police officer. And he hid that from the public. So those things come into play later on that his girlfriend is now is a former police officer's daughter. See what I'm saying? So it becomes very deep and intrinsic that he is pro-police, anti-black, anti-justice, anti-cash bail anti-police accountability. And we need something different in our society and definitely in St. Louis County. Um, but the alternative for us is Kimberly Garner in the city. 
And so when the McCluskeys pulled the guns out on us, Kim Gardner, the prosecutor in the city of St. Louis, actually brought charges against them. But the Republican Party said that they were going to, our government was going to pardon them um, if she brought charges and that they were actually indicted and convicted. Well, uh, speaking of Kim Gardner, uh, the uh, CJL that I had, the Justice and Liberties for All Committee, did interview her and make a video about her called the Standing Chief Prosecutor. Well, I actually have been lucky enough to have, to have met her myself in St. Louis, but doesn't she actually confirm that she's only an exception to the rule that most of the state apparatus is not going to drop its support towards the police. I think Kim is, uh, is, is not the exception to rule. I think she's a vanguard. And I think that she's a model uh, for things to come. I think what we have to see is Kim's family has been through the criminal justice system. Um, you know, her family owns businesses and she grew up in the hood. Um, she's still over there um, in the hood, really. And so for us, it's the difference to us is that really we as the people, we as movement people, we have to decide what we're going to do. And if we can't find politicians or people to be pushed and moved in these ways, maybe possibly uh, we need to start running for office and implement our own goals and strategies, um, at least on a local level, to create cities where Black Lives Matter cities where police are held accountable, cities where people have adequate housing, health care, and education, um, city where uh, we put the people over politics and the people over profits. And so we have to create cities. And I think Kim, uh, like I said, she's a model for the country and possibly the world of what a prosecutor is supposed to do when she's holding 300 plus officers accountable for being dirty cops. Tori, we take a short break. We'll be right back after a, a few minutes and we will continue this conversation uh, on racism and police brutality with St. Louis as the center of our conversation. We'll continue, of course, with the case of Breonna Taylor and, of course, the upcoming election and the good old blackmail. If you don't vote for me, you're voting for uh, the bad guy. And in this case, Donald Trump. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the breakdown. This is your host, Yasser Luati, still from the Paris Southside Beaulieu. I'm honored to have again uh, Tori Russell in St. Louis, who is discussing with us what's going on in the post George Floyd America, the demonstrations uh, all over the country. And we are having St. Louis as the epicenter of our conversation. Uh, he's going to speak to us right now in the second part of the Breonna Taylor uh, case. Now, for us watching what's going on in the US, we come to ask ourselves, is there a sense of fatigue among activists as they were demonstrating, you know, after the brutal racist murder of George Floyd, here comes the George Floyd assassination. And on top of it, the acquittal of the police officers uh, uh, involved in the shooting. After we learned that the, uh, the prosecutor tried to bribe uh, Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend, so, so he would accuse her of being part of a drug ring. Yeah. Uh, after they shot her, did the police call? We didn't really hear about the case until May, though. Right. So it took two months to really even get the information. Which means that there must be dozens, if not hundreds, of killings going on in the U.S. that, are, that go unreported, unless mm -hmm. someone picks up the story and makes it a national sto you know, story. Right. Now, the question is, did the police call for an ambulance when they shot her or they left her there to die? Um, there was none of that at the scene. Um, they were more concerned with uh, the boyfriend. The boyfriend called the police when he heard the banging and he made shots. And he called the police and said, hey, man, somebody trying to rob us. Send the police. Okay? So that's the call. He's like, I don't know. Someone's trying to rob me. Um, and then they say, oh, no, they're executing a warrant. And so he comes out of the house, right? And he said, hey, look, man, my girlfriend in there, she's shot. I need an ambulance. They don't come, right? There's no uh, immediate medical attention to her. They're more concerned with him and the gun and finding drugs and all those things. They found no drugs, no packages, anything going to the ex-boyfriend. Only gun they found was a boyfriend's, which was legal. So... You know, that's uh, really sad that an EMT worker um, in the middle of a pandemic uh, can't even get the medical attention that she has given out to, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of Louisville, uh, Louisville residents. But that's what adds insult to injury. So you have a black woman killed in her sleep by police officers. There is nothing against her. And on top of it, she's a medic who gets killed in the midst of a pandemic as people, I mean, like all countries celebrate medical staffers as heroes because they're saving lives on a daily basis. What was the reaction nationwide that this first, an innocent black woman was killed by the police and on top of it, that she was the unsung heroes of the, uh, this uh, pandemic crisis? I think we have to talk about like, you know, this year when we had Amar Aubrey brother jogging in Georgia who was shot and killed by it's white supremacists. Um, then we had George Floyd getting choked out. Uh, he was, they, the officer kneeled on him. They found they, they worked together. Those four officers were charged. Um, and then months later, you had Breonna Taylor. And so we had this media narrative, a movement narrative that we don't rise up or we don't do anything for black women. And so uh, Tamika Mallory, um, and some others went until freedom went to uh, bring celebrities and athletes to Louisville to protest. 
Um, and after they made some phone calls, I joined them because I feel like, um, you know, Malcolm X made this quote. He said, you know, the most unprotected and disrespected woman on earth is the black woman. And so I, as a black man, wanted to stand up and organize and do something about that to change that narrative. I believe that Breonna Taylor's case has become world-renowned um, and it got a lot of attention, LeBron James and others and Jay-Z and Beyonce's, but we're seeing that that doesn't bring justice. That brings awareness, but it doesn't bring justice. And so, well, right now we're tinkering and trying to figure out um, after months and months of protesting is like, what formula do we use? Um, where can we find alternatives to funding? I think, you know, uh, white guilt is cool, um, but we need black actors and entertainers and rappers and athletes to, to fund the transformative work um, that we're attempting to do. And if we can't get that funding, um, I think we'll continue to be boxed in um, to vote or die or just vote it away or pray it away or, or just one-sided things. We need a holistic movement um, and we need that holistic movement funded um, because as you, as you know, uh, it's not too many activists around the country and around the world who does this work constantly. Um, and so, yeah, it gets tiring. Um, I had to come home and quarantine. We had a COVID scare in the jails. Yeah, man, I'm tired and we need to sustain it. Before we speak of activism fatigue, because you cannot be outraged 24 seven right. and be on call around the clock, just not humanly possible. Uh, what was the reaction of the city hall of Louisville that you say, as you reminded us that it's a democratic city in a red state, a Republican one, was the answer from the city hall up to the task, to the event or was they, were they again dragging their feet to mini and try to minimize the implications of the police? Well, I guess, I guess we have to understand is that uh, uh, in, in the U.S. we have something. I don't know if it's any other place, uh, but after Brianna Taylor was killed, organized the local organizers create uh, Brianna's Law. It's basically trying to ban no-knock warrants and chokeholds. Uh, that didn't work. So we had to understand is that the city council was not for that, even though they have a democratic mayor. The mayor was not for it, right? Why? Uh, What's his, his argument? Uh, because our Democrats here in the state, most of our Democrats are pro-labor and that the, the police union is a part of the labor movement. He's pro-police. And our Democrats are pro-labor, anti-black. And so you can be pro-teachers union and all these other unions and police unions, long as you're not pro-black. And so they don't want to pass policies that might affect white supremacy. Um, and at the state level, what I learned when I went to Kentucky is that there's only one black woman in the House of Representatives in the entire state of Kentucky. Attica Scott, who was just arrested yesterday, she was targeted by uh, the state police and arrested as an organizer leader. And they're, charging, they're trying to charge her with a class D felony uh, for being outside after the curfew for trying to get people into a safe house in a church. These are the things that we up against. And so we have to understand Democrat and Republican are both pro-police and no one is pro-police accountability and definitely no one is pro-black. Um, 
as a whole, as a party, not individuals. We can we talk about radical leftists. We can talk about AOCs um, and Omars, but in the, in the totality of it, we just saw um, Democrats and Republicans vote to bring a judge in for Donald Trump. 93 to two, only two Democrats voted against it. Um, the other 40 Democrats voted for it. So we are living in that kind of society. How does Breonna Taylor's family cope, not only through the grief of losing a loved one, but seeing that the environment in which they live is ever more hostile as they are still grieving for their daughter, their sister, their cousin, etc. I mean, like this is kind of because at, at some point you may expect some kind of sympathy or empathy coming from authorities. We are sorry for your loss, but here it's like, no, we are going to continue protecting the assassins of your loved one. No, I think to me when I got there, and I, I got to uh, meet Kenneth Walker, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, and uh, go around to Mika. Uh, which is Brianna Taylor's mother, and go around Janai, her, her sister, who actually lived there, who actually just wasn't home then. And so she was there. The bullets that missed would have shot her sister. Uh, you see people who are trying to cope in, 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 in different ways. But we have to understand, because I know there's a lot of talk like, oh, she took the settlement over justice. You got to understand these people are poor working class black people. Um, you can't go to work after this. Um, you can't go clock in after this. Uh, uh, you know, how do you go to work after you, you know, not only your sister or your daughter or your cousin or your niece was killed, um, and now it's a national story. How do you cope with that? And on top of that, uh, uh, live your life, pay bills, feed your children. I, th I think we see the twelve million dollar settlement as something like, you know, it's, it's it's something against justice, but in actuality, there's somebody trying to survive. And then even a part of that settlement was police reforms, asking for body cameras, mandatory cut on switches, um, you know, firing mechanisms, police accountability measures. And so, what you see as the mainstream media puts out is not really what it is. And that's why I went to Louisville to get inside of it to see it from the inside so I, I can turn it upside down and actually see it. So, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um, I haven't been through it. Um, but, you know, we just heard to support the family. People will accuse the family of taking the money, $12 million, as if it were going to their pockets, and right. accepting to drop the charges against the police, the involved police officers, and allowing for such a killing to repeat itself? What's the answer to that coming from the movement? Um, if you believe that poor working class people uh, or just a family of black people who poor, uh, probably not politically inclined, probably don't know the governor. If you think that they have some kind of power and they relinquish that by taking some money, then you don't understand white supremacy. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything that you could or couldn't do to make them do what was right. And they had, they took these six months to justify killing her. That's all that, that's all that they were doing.
they wanted to, you know, uh, cover all, you know, color all bases. And so to the people that say that, I understand that they don't understand the system. They don't understand racism. They don't understand white supremacy. They don't understand the Republican or the Democratic Party in the U.S. Um, they don't really understand how we go get justice. And so um, if you believe that that was a deterrent for her, um, then you was you would have saw her that day and the very next day outside marching, leading protests, even after the seven. So, and I'm talking Breonna about her mother. So Brianna Taylor's uh, mother, mother was still we on the, the street. With Breonna uh, Taylor's mother, the day, the same day, the same day she went outside. She was protesting. The next day she was out to let people know I ain't giving up. She said, she just said last week, I want, the day that they said there was really no real charges, she said, I want criminal charges. I don't care about a settlement. I care about the criminal charges. But that part of the story is not really uh, made known to the rest of the world. The only thing that the mainstream media picked up was that there was a settlement for $12 million. So of course, charges dropped. The family is rich, and that's it. Move on. Yeah, I, 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 I can, I can show you some families. Uh, Mike Brown, senior, uh, the father of Mike Brown Jr., barely got any money. It was two years after no justice. Um, Kendrick Johnson, the kid who was killed in uh, Georgia, they found rolled up in a mat, no money. And so I can show you hundreds of families who received no settlement, no money, no justice. And so if you if if you think that's a part of the equation for justice, your your equation is off. Now, how are the protests going in terms of uh, the acquittal of the police officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor? Is the movement gaining momentum? And are you optimistic on where the movement is going despite the ongoing police shootings targeting black and brown minorities? and of the prospective acquittal of the officers involved. Do you think the movement is on the track to gain steam and push forward regardless of what's going on around it? Or do you think that we are reaching a moment of, let's say, uh, questioning, fatigue, and on top of it, lack of resources? I, I think, I think we're starting to question everything. I, I, I see in Louisville, when I went there, there's not a lot of trained organizers. Um, and that's not a lot of people that I've seen really actively trying to, to, to I don't want to say actively trying because they're attempting, but have the skill set to execute their plan and their vision. And so I think this, the good thing is that people are still coming outside. I think that comes with time. I think that comes with training and advice uh, from people. But I think the latter point of it is true. Um, people not having resources, people being out there for a hundred plus days, um, people not having uh, no one to lean on, uh, you know, the media not picking up the stories or the right stories. It becomes tiring. It, it makes you feel like you're picking up a thousand, you know, two, three, four thousand pound elephant. And, and you're trying to figure that out all on your own. And so I think we have to figure out a way to, to, to move uh, these athletes and entertainers. I, I know that they put on Breonna Taylor uh, shirts and, and fists and 
but uh, masks and all those things. Uh, but we have to, they have to either, to me, they have to do one or two things. They either have to stop playing sports, stop singing songs, stop making movies, stop entertaining white supremacists, um, or start funding the movement to destroy white supremacy. Those are the only two things that I would like to see. And so if they never gave us a dime, I would be fine as long as they did the other, which is stop entertaining white supremacy and making right. And we have to make racism expensive in this country. We just had the, the CEO of Wells Fargo said that he can't find qualified minorities. He can't find qualified black and brown people in 2020. That just means that you have a very racist network or you have a very limited one. But more importantly, that makes you unqualified to lead a bank. But we all know the history of Wells Fargo. Um, Wells Fargo recent history is that they just caught uh, with tons of uh, illegal drugs on their ship. And they long old histories that before they were Wells Fargo, um, they were a bank who funded the insurance companies for slavery in America. So that's the history of Wells Fargo. Um, if you're connected to Wells Fargo, I would advise you to, to stop your account with them and find someone else. Um, but I'm, that's just America. So I wonder how many uh, these pro athletes and these entertainers are is actually still banking with Wells Fargo. But that's the part of the movement that we have to connect. When you see that in the post, first as the grand jury was about to make public their decision, uh, Louis V was placed under a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. the, the protests you know, went on regardless and reports were made about two police officers getting shot. What does that say about the movement and where it's going? Especially, and of course, nobody's calling for violence here or justifying it. But a question remains on the fact that people were asked to show sympathy towards the shot police officers, but they never showed up to seek sympathy towards Breonna Taylor's family not only for losing their daughter, sister, cousin, uh, girlfriend, and again, uh, having to cope with the prospective acquittal of these uh, officers. What does it say that, you know, when you see that two police officers get shot, what does it say about the movement? I don't think it says anything about the movement. Uh, the movement, uh, we protest. Uh, we do nonviolent direct action. We shut down highways. Uh, we shut down city council members. Uh, we run people for office. Um, and we demand justice. And so I think that if you try to paint the movement as uh, a cop shooting or a cop killing movement, after six years and you know tens of thousands of people being involved in the movement, uh, my estimation is that there's more of us than them and that there'll be no America, there'll be no cops in America because all of them be shot and killed at this point. And so that shows us that the movement is not shooting and killing cops. They're just people who are upset. I'm, I'm not here to, to defend or condemn anybody. I'm here to demand justice. And so I know one thing for a fact is that people may be bad at buildings burning and people looting or rioting or, or even officers getting shot. Um, but I'm more mad that there are people having to respond or responding in any way that they believe to injustice. I'm more concerned about Brianna Taylor's life, 
George Floyd, Mar uh, Marbury, um, Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, Tanisha Anderson, Sandra Bland. We can go on and on. I'm more concerned why those innocent lives were taken um, than an officer being shot. I really don't have any compassion. I don't. I don't send out condolences. Um, I just demand justice. And so for me, if you asking me to have an apology for the police being shot, I don't have one for you. And I will never have one for you um, until all black people and all people in society around the world have justice for them. Isn't there a risk of reducing the movement to an anti-police movement? It's not anti-police, it's, 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 it's pro-justice. And I think we keep framing it that way, really, because we have to really talk about it. if the movement is pro-justice and the police are the number one deterrent to justice, then that means the police are anti-justice. And so if you're saying that the police are anti-justice and I'm pro-justice, then that might make me anti-police. But I'm saying that the movement is always just asking for justice. I don't know every officer in the country. Um, I don't know if I don't, I don't know if every officer in the country is bad. I just haven't seen any good cops apprehend any bad cops or prevent them from doing the injustice that we see on TV or making the mainstream media or even local media. What's your take on elected officials who support the police no matter what, as we saw it earlier, and by extension, their political parties, when in your analysis, the police is hostile to the very notion of justice by either going against it, as you say, or pretending to be above it and out of reach from the justice system. What's your take on those officials? I mean, like, do they, are they also part of making the police beyond accountability? Yeah, I mean, they definitely are trying to make the police beyond accountability. I just, I just question, do they want to win elections? And so I've seen Joe Biden put out a, uh, condolences um, for the police. I saw no condolences for Breonna Taylor. I saw Kamala Harris. Uh, I mean, it's not Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris. She said the same thing. She said that she was sending out condolences for the police. Excuse me, sending out condolences for the police. I heard nothing about condolences to the family of Breonna Taylor. And so for me, it just let me know who who they don't want to vote for them. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it as they don't want people in the movement to vote for them. They don't want people who are upset about police brutality to vote for them. Um, they don't want people who are freedom fighters or justice seekers to vote for them. I think that they are actually wooing and trying to get more votes from the police. And they should be more concerned with a base of people who have not been engaged, who have been always historically disenfranchised, and who are really ready for a champion for justice. We just waiting on that person to show up. Uh, Tori, you spoke of uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, which means we will have to speak of the Democratic Party and the upcoming election and the blackmail people face in terms of if you don't vote for Biden, you are voting for Trump, whether you are not voting or not. We take a short break and the last part of this podcast will be about the election, but of course uh, the quagmire that the Democratic Party finds itself in, whether to question its past policies 
or embrace progressive politics. We will be right back. Welcome again to the last section of our episode with uh, Tori Russell. We've been talking so far of the post-George Floyd America we are witnessing, the killing of Breonna Taylor and the acquittal of uh, Darwin Wilson, the acquittal of the police officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor as she was sleeping in her own house, the role of the movement and where it's going, and now, of course, the conversation naturally went towards electoral politics. Uh, Tori spoke to us about uh, the involvement of the Democratic Party in terms of making the police un unaccountable and supporting uh, efforts to resist uh, police transparency, police accountability, and the indictment of police officers involved in uh, brutality, if not killings, of innocent uh, people. Seen from where we are across the Atlantic, uh, I personally have a sense that uh, liberal self-righteousness is again being put on display as if uh, liberals were the solution to all of America's problems, as if they were not part of them. We saw it, we see the same mechanism uh, that we saw during the Trump-Clinton uh, confrontation in 2016. And so far, we don't see any signs that the Democratic Party is seizing this historic moment to question its past policies, its own failures, and its own corruption when it comes to robbing electors from their own elections by, you know, calling, by setting up platforms and then passing policy that go against them. Uh, my question uh, for you, Tori Russell, is, from what you've been seeing both in Missouri and uh, Kentucky, and more generally in the street where you've been uh, in organizing, 
What is the mood towards Joe Biden? Are people embracing the idea of a Biden-Kamala Harris presidency, or they feel like they are again being blackmailed? It's either uh, us or the very bad, you know, Donald Trump. I think there's a couple people um, that are looking at the election. Um, I think there's a, 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 the leftists, right? The Bernie Sanders supporters, the people who are more progressive um, than most, still don't really see race. You know, they don't see color that much either. Um, but they know that this ain't it. So you got the one crowd of people that's like, yeah, I'm really... I'm really not a fan of Joe Biden. Then you got the other crowd who's just anti-Trump. You know, you could put Mr. Potato Head to run against Trump, and I think they're going to vote for Mr. Potato Head because uh, they just hate Trump. And then you have a third kind of tier that's kind of waiting it out, and it's really like, should I really even give my time and my energy to even vote for Joe Biden? And I think those are the people who really have to be convinced. I think the people who are progressive, in actuality, I think they are theoretically, I think they're theoretically progressive. But when it comes down to vote, they're gonna vote. And they're gonna vote for the Democratic Party. The people who anti-Trump are gonna vote for anybody other than Trump. Um, and that's probably gonna be Joe Biden. I think the a big base of people are just being neglected. and so. When you don't have policy, you don't have legislation, you don't have a platform to directly address the things that the people in the street or the people in the community are addressing, then you're going to see just people stay at home. I'll give you an example. Uh, the state of Michigan was won by Donald Trump, I think by less than 50,000 votes. In the city of Detroit alone, Detroit is you know almost 80% black. Over 250,000 people did not vote, majority of which of those people are black or brown people. So if they could just convince 100,000, even half of those people to actually vote, they will vote. But in places like Detroit and other places around the country, they haven't convinced us to vote. But what's your answer, Tori, to, and again, I'm not taking sides here, I'm just, you know, putting on the table. Do your job, Vance, do your job. <laughs> It's making, feel, making people feel guilty should they decide not to go vote, not even go vote for Trump. I'm just saying the mere fact that you don't go out and vote, you could be held accountable for allowing Donald Trump to be reelected and therefore Donald Trump being completely unleashed because he will no longer have to fear to run for reelection. And in this case, what was seen as very bad policies will become catastrophic uh, you know, policies and maybe the end of what the so-called American democracy or democratic experience. Well, I would, uh, well, I'm gonna do my job now and I'm gonna say that uh, America has never been a democracy. Um, every, every person in the country has never had the right to vote. Um, black, some black people had the right to vote in the late 1870s. Um, that was stripped away in the 1890s. Um, white women got the right to vote in the early 1900s. And black people weren't allowed to vote until the mid-1960s. And then they had provisions around that. Every black person in the country, uh, in the United States of America, 
probably to the shock um, to your audience, we don't have the right to vote. Depending on where you live, uh, I, as a person who worked in politics, who ran campaigns, I went to go see if I was even registered to vote in this election. I was not even registered to vote anymore. I was taking off of the voters list. And so there are things and barriers in place that's going to stop a lot of black people and a lot of poor people and a lot of brown people from voting. And it has nothing to do with Trump. It has everything to do with the system. And so if I ask this for you to create a better system or a new system that works for everyone, and I had to ask you which party was doing it, not which individual, which party was doing it, you wouldn't find a party. And so I know the critique is if you don't vote for Trump, I mean, if you don't vote for Biden, you vote for Trump, right? But you can't force me to vote for somebody I don't believe. Yeah, but uh, uh, sorry, I'm gonna have to interrupt you on this. Uh, coming back to what you just said, uh, you're speaking about how difficult it may be for some, for many people of non-white minorities to go out and vote because they have they've been taken of the list because of gerrymandering, etc. Okay, we got that. Now, the accusation or the finger pointing is being made towards people who can vote, who are on the, on the, on the list, and still decide not to go out and vote. So let's put aside the people who have been taken out for whatever reason that, Amer and that's, again, we can have a whole episode on uh, voter suppression in America. Okay, now let's talk about the people who can vote and nevertheless decide not to, with the risk of allowing a Trump to get reelected because his base is extremely mobilized at the expense of their own lives. We see it with the masks, etc. They don't care. They go to his rallies and they make sure that you know pops and moms are there, the grandparents are there, and everybody. And they go. They're going to be there to mobilize everybody. Now, the finger pointing is that again, and I insist on this responsibility will be put on the shoulders of the people who said, I'm not going to vote for Biden or outright say, you know what, to hell with the election. I don't see any difference. But in fact, there will be a difference. I think, I think, I think the point is, is that we having this conversation up until a point, right? And so let's have a conversation beyond the point. I don't think people are saying, we, I'm not voting. I'm not voting for Biden, period. I think it's, I'm not voting for Biden. Yeah, because I think we having this conversation um, up until a point, and it's time to kind of go deeper. And so one point is like, people are hearing people say, I'm not voting, and they say, and they hear, I'm not voting, period. And what they should be hearing is, I'm not voting for Biden, if, right? So it's an if, right? And so it's still time on the clock where, where the Democratic Party can do some things advocate for some things, promise some things, change some policies and some things if they get elected. And I think they're gonna turn people out. I think that's one point, right? So if you start looking at these uh, uh, percentages and start looking at like policies and agendas, uh, black people have never received 5% of the small business loans from the federal government in the history of America, if you can believe that. Um, uh, there's never been a majority black cabinet in the history of a presidency. So that means out of the 22 spots, we've never even had, we've never had 12, we've never had 11, we've never had 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. The most we've ever had was two, right? Two in the cabinet. And so they're telling me that all I can get is 
Asians don't vote as much as black people, but there's been as many Asians in the cabinet as black people, as many Latinos on the, on the Supreme Court justice as black people. So what I'm saying is, is that there has to be some intrinsic, deep policy offered up to people. And you can't tell me, hey, look, do you want to eat garbage? No. Well, if you don't want to eat garbage, eat, you know, roadkill. Because if the option is bad, worse, evil, heinous, malice intent, sorry I accidentally killed you, you you creating a false dichotomy and you trying to force people, like you said, blackmailing me into voting for something that's not for what I'm for. You asking some people to get up, vote against something, but not for something, right? So you're telling someone to not dream, but to wake up from a nightmare. And if you think that's sufficient enough to carry on and lead a country, then maybe America, maybe it's time for America to collapse. Maybe it's time for American uh, democracy to be shown in the world that it's not the truth. Are you saying that American democracy is resting right now upon the shoulders of African-American voters? It always has since 1965. It's always been a scare tactic. We've either been the people, so we've either been the scapegoat for the election or the margin of victory. And so the first, the first place that we can vote was 1968, the first presidential, right? So we have to talk about the first presidential election um, takes place in 1972, and that's the first one we can vote in. And so we became and always have been the margin of victory. Um, when Obama ran, it was almost 22 million black people who voted. When Hillary ran, it was 17.8. That's a five, almost a five million people drop off. Literally, Donald Trump, I mean, not Donald Trump, Hillary won by five million votes, but she needed an extra two million spread across these swing states to win. So imagine if she enthused these black votes again to get these votes out. If she would have talked about, if she would have, just like you said, if we would have talked about, yes, my husband was a mass incarcerator, but I'm going to be a mass liberator. Then you would have saw people come out, right? If you would have talked about promises, if anyone comes up on the Supreme Court, I want to put a black person on there, right? If you start talking about policies and agendas, I'm going to give more money to historically black colleges, more money uh, to public education, more money uh, to healthcare, uh, universal healthcare. If you start talking about those things, then you'll see driving, people driven. The other part that we're not talking about is that yes, Trump has a base. I think Trump's base has expanded and that the white people who also said that they don't vote will vote for Trump because they are actually receiving something from their president which most of us have never received. We could, we could argue about cheap votes. Donald Trump gave us, or not, you know, gave the American public a stimulus check during an economic crisis, okay? I don't see the Democrats matching that in my lifetime. Yes, it was a small check, but at least he had the savvy to put one in place and he wants to put another one in place. I'm talking about direct resources to people. I thought that was the democratic platform. And so what I'm saying is to black people and poor people who've never had a thousand dollars, 
never had small business loans. And he gave out thousands of dollars in small business loans to people with LLCs to struggling businesses. I've seen more economic things coming out of Trump than I've seen out of the Democrats in my 30 plus years of living. Yeah, but uh, Tommy, this might sound as a provocative statement, uh, especially in this uh, free election uh, period. What do you say to people who say that uh, Trump may have given some peanuts to minorities here and there, and that is going to be some kind of, okay, Artisa did that, but in the end, there's going to be a much greater loss should he be reelected? Because you know, honestly, in France, it's the same thing. You know, they come here to the banlieue, and you're gonna promote this person in the city hall. We're gonna renew this, the the soccer field, etc. Then when they get elected, it's again, you know, police all over the place, and you know, Muslim places get raided, and again, it's you know, keeping in check uh, the uh, the post-colonial immigration. So I'm not saying it's similar. But we I'm not saying I'm, I hear you, and what I'm saying is, is that, so if you're starving, and someone offered you nothing, and someone offered you peanuts, what are you taking? The, the the answer is obvious. The answer is obvious, and so all we asking for is now at the Democratic Party. Most people not even asking for for a steak. We just asking for a sandwich. Can you can you exceed the peanuts that we have received? Because in my lifetime, the Democrats and the Republicans have locked me up in jail and mass incarceration. That's Reagan or Clinton. So what Bush is and Obama was deporting people and treating people like terrorists. So what is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris not saying that would convince y'all to vote, at least to out to vote Trump out, and then adhere to the idea that okay, Trump is out, we can now deal with the Democratic Party. You know, our strategy is, 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 is that if we don't get the things that we're asking for before the election, um, we're going to mass mobilize and try to shut the country down after inauguration. Because there are, some, there are some strategic, tangible things that we need as a community. So one, we have to end qualified immunity for police officers. Um, they can't be treated like doctors or surgeons. They're not doing that kind of job. Um, we need accountability. We need police departments to be defunded at the federal level if they do not comply with consent decrees and standards and best practices for policing, right? We need economics. We need small business loans. I believe that we need 25% of the small business loans in this country. We need a tripling of the of F, uh, HBCU funding, not only from the college level, um, we believe that black people should be able to go to college and historically black colleges for free. We believe that we need healthcare. We need quality uh, housing and we need $100,000 grants in the same way that white immigrants were given in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s and 80s. We need the same things that everyone else needs, the same thing that Dr. King advocated before he was killed and assassinated. We need an economic floor and we need an economic ladder to climb up. So what we're saying is, is that if black people cannot have a part of the American dream, we're willing to sit out and watch an American nightmare fall. It won't just be black people suffering this time. And Joe Biden is not addressing any of that? Any of these things. He, he just went on TV last month and, and said that 
because we know we talked about defund the police, right? Joe Biden said that Donald Trump is actually trying to defund the police. And, and Biden wants to put more police officers on the street. So to the movement, it's very confusing to people say, well, if Trump want to defund the police, I want to defund the police. That sounds like the candidate for me. And so I don't know what Simone Sanders is telling Biden in his ear, but they need some better talking points or they might want to move somebody out. But this is what happens to me when you move out of Bernie Sanders, um, probably the most progressive and the best candidate, even though he's not the best on race. He's probably the person who could get, who would have gave the most to the electorate, kind of like a populist, because I believe a populist, only a populist can be the populist. And if you can move people in ways when they talk about universal health care, they talking about jobs and businesses. They talking about job training. They talking about free education, right? We talking about the things that make someone whole as a human. If you give those people those things, you will see a vast amount of people voting. But now you're seeing a vast amount of racist and more racist and more anti-justice seekers come come out than the people seeking justice. So, what do you answer to people like? you know, well-respected by myself included uh, uh, black intellectuals who actually call to vote for Joe Biden in order to get Trump out of the White House and then deal with Joe Biden by keeping the streets mobilized. I mean, I love, so, I mean, I, you know, I love Dr. West. <laughs> I love, you know, I respect Angela Davis. Uh, where I'm from, you know, we, we, we call a spade a spade and we, we, we name it. And so I don't believe that you can push Biden on something that he doesn't see. If he doesn't believe that black people deserve justice and he's uh, condemning protesters um, while sending out condolences to police officers, I don't know how you push a pro-police law and order uh, uh, president. I don't know how you do that. If he's not talking about uh, the proletariat, the working class, like Dr. West would talk about, then how are we going to push someone who's for more Wall Street than Main Street? I don't think you push those people um, in ways, unless you're talking about mass disruption, mass mobilization, shutting the entire country down for it. And if that's the case, then we should be doing that right now. Why wait later when you can have it now? You could force him to promise now and then force him again to implement it later. But we have no promises. So you can't even imagine someone to be pushed to something that they have not even communicated out their own mouth. Speaking of the Democratic Party, there was a historic election won by Cory Bush uh, yes. in the Ferguson district. What is your call to Cory Bush from this platform and the talking points and the demands that she could carry through the Democratic Party uh, to, to, to which she belongs? I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I would just, you know, I know Corey. I just want Corey to stay Corey. If Corey does what Corey's always done, she's always been a Ferguson protester. She's always been on the front lines of justice. Um, if she doesn't go to the halls of Congress, um, and, and compromise Palestine for APAC money. Um, if she if she doesn't go with Africom and, and looks to seek African liberation, 
um, and she wants to change those policies and, and sanctions around that. If she's pro-democracy, then she'll be for uh, the, the, the relinquishing of these sanctions on Venezuela um, and, and, and I believe on Somalia now. And so what we have to say is that she has to be deep in her politics, but also in the forefront and take really what we say, take the protest to the halls of Congress. How about demands for this election? That you saw you people would vote for Joe Biden? I can't, to me, I don't see Corey advocating for people to vote for Joe Biden. I don't, I don't see her doing that. I see her advocating for things and not people. And I think that's where we have to be and we have to be more astute. We have to be more aware that really in all, in all honesty, we, they keep talking about Biden or, or Harris when we should be talking about parties. I know in Europe, you don't, you vote for the party. You know, you, you for labor, you, you, you know, you're part of the Tories or you're not. And so for me, you either well, want an agenda. I'm France, so there are no Tories here. That's in England. Exactly. <laughs> right. But I'm saying just in Europe in general, right? You have these kind of, of different parties. Parties implement policies and agenda, not individuals. And so once we, we have to talk about Biden, but we really should be talking about the Democratic and the Republican Party. What agenda are they actually implementing? And in my lifetime, I've seen no difference. All I've seen is a left wing and a right wing of white supremacy. I've seen, you know, the same bird just directed by other parties, but white supremacy, racism, sexism, homophobia, poverty, mass incarceration, criminal justice, right? The lack of these things or the imitation of these things have been a constant in our community. I'm going to ask you a last question, Tori. I'm not even, even going to ask you to be honest because you've been extremely honest gotcha. as you've always been. What are your projections first for the movement in the next uh, coming weeks before the election? And what's your projection past the election? Do you bet on Joe Biden winning or Trump? And what will be the aftermath of that? So the movement and the election. Um, I think that, uh, I think one, uh, I think for the movement, I think people are going to strategically figure this thing out. I think people are going to see um, that both parties are not rocking with us, don't have an agenda for us. We might make a strategy and plan to vote just to create a better condition, or we might not. But I think what's going to happen is that more people are becoming unified around what is the people's agenda not a party's agenda, but what's the people's agenda. My hope is that is that I'm going to be optimistic, um, is that the athletes, rappers, entertainers, uh, singers, uh, corporations, businesses who say they support the movement are going to put their money where their mouth is and sustain us finally. That we're going to have the resources um, to fight a system that's fighting us full time. If white supremacy and racism and capitalism is fighting us full time, then we need people fighting the system full time. So we need more community organizers. We need more advocates. We need to groom our own candidates. We need our own communications and media. These are the things that I hope will be funded over the next uh, month or so. And I think beyond that, I think what we're going to see, unfortunately, to me, I think we're going to see Trump be reelected. 
And now you're going to see more people unify for a unified push that whatever happens in the midterm or going forward, that more people will have a more unified coalition agenda. Um, it won't just be a feminist agenda. It won't just be an LGBTQ agenda. It just won't be a black agenda or a brown agenda. It has to be an agenda where everyone receives justice and everyone receives freedom in America. If not, then the people will push and we might see the empire of America fall. And, and, and so for me, we have to prepare ourselves and our people for both. We have to prepare ourselves for justice and freedom and prepare ourselves to be politically astute to what it takes, what parts of the system we don't like, how do we change it, how do we transform it, um, and how do we move it in the direction that the people need it to do, or we must prepare our people for the fall in the empire, um, like the British in the 1940s and other places, is that you have to prepare the people to actually survive the fallen empire. Tommy Russell, thank you very much for your deep analysis. I know that you're speaking out of experience and lived the struggles for the, of the past 20 years and more. Uh, the forecast for what's going to happen next is extremely blurry. Uh, chances are, you know, maybe the American democratic experiment could bounce back thanks to a strongly mobilized movement, or as you said, to be the further, you know, the, the, on, the, the continuous downfall of the American empire, only time will tell. Uh, in the meantime, to our listeners in the US, please stay safe, practice social distancing, wear your masks, please. If you don't wanna take care of yourself, take care of others. In the meantime, I thank you for the time spent with us. Tori Russell, thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me. Free Mumia. As for you, dear listeners, uh, this is the end of our episode of The Breakdown. We'll be back soon uh, again to cover U.S. politics and the global uh, liberation movements that are taking place across the Atlantic, in Europe, Africa, and Asia, and across, of course, the Middle East. Some good news are happening there, and we'll try to cover them as soon as possible. As for me, this was Yasser Luati, coming to you straight from the Paris south side of Bonlieu. Stay safe. Talk to you soon.